Father, our, our greatest desire would be that you would be pleased with what you have heard arise from the hearts of your people. That because we realize that we have come here today not to get, but to give. We've come here today to um, offer something on the altar of God, something of ourselves. And one such thing, O oh God, is our praise. There is so much room to praise you, so much reason, so much cause. And we pray, Father, that what will, what will be heard in heaven is a group of people who, who have a sense that their very existence, their life and their breath is as a gift from heaven. That our days are numbered that we have been appointed once to die, and all of that by the God who wove us in a womb and brought us to life and now redeemed us through shed blood. We are a people who owe you much, O oh God. And when we have done all that we could possibly do, it is no more than what we should have done in the first place. And so it is to grace that we plead. We pray for grace to cover all of our shortcoming, our sin, our iniquity, our failure, even our flawed praise, our flawed faith, our flawed repentance. Cover us, O oh God, as you have promised to do. We understand that we are standing here today, saved men and women, not because of our commitment to you, but because of your commitment to us. And so, Father, get praise from your people today. Lord, we also want to ask that as we gather around prayer and singing and Bible study this morning, that what will be heard is not the voice of the singer, but the voice of the singer's God. That what, you will, what we will hear is not the preacher, but the voice of the preacher's God. And might He, in all of His sin, be hidden while Jesus, in all of His beauty, be seen. Father, it is to the thrice holy God that we give our tithes and our offerings. They are small, yes, but they are expressions. Expressions of hearts full of gratitude to the God who made us and redeemed us in Christ Jesus. It is to that God we give, and, is that, and it is that God that we praise. And our prayer is made in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you. And open them to the uh, Gospel of Luke, the great physician. Luke chapter 19, and we'll interrupt our, our uh, study of Judges while we uh, enjoy Holy Week, a, um, a week known to you all as the last week of the life of Christ. I, I, before I read my text, I want to mention one thing to you. Uh, many of you may not be readers. Uh, that's not certainly a requirement, but if you are, I've got a book to recommend for you. Um, that would be so wonderfully appropriate for this week. 
That is, uh, if you wanted to read something that would really stir you uh, in terms of enjoyment of the profundity of this week, this is it. On a Hill Too Far Away by uh, John Fisher. Uh, the staff has read it. The, uh, the eldership has read it. And I asked them to uh, kind of rate it. And the lowest rating we got was eight on a scale of one to ten. It is wonderful. It is, it's an easy read, but this uh, brother has done us, a, done us a favor in reminding us that the, that the hill is too far away. It's available to you in the bookstore. Um, you know, I'm not, we're not making money in our bookstore, gang. We're not, we're, in fact, we're trying to save you money. But if you want some good reading material for this week, this would be it. Now, at Luke chapter 19, 19 verse 28, follow as I read a very familiar story to you at verse 28. Here we go. When he had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem and it came to pass when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mountain called Olivet that he sent two of his disciples saying, <clears throat> go, into the, <clears throat> pardon me, go into the village opposite you where as you enter you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Loose it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you loosing it? Thus you shall say to him, because the Lord <clears throat> has need of it. So <clears throat> those who were sent went their way and found it just as he had said to them. But as they were loosing the colt, the owners of it said to them, why are you loosing the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of him. Then they brought him to Jesus and they threw their own clothes on the colt, and they set Jesus on him. And as he went, many spread their clothes on the road. Then, as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher! Rebuke your disciples. And he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. Now as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for, for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another, because you did not know the time of your visitation. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. About 15 years ago, I preached a sermon that was entitled, It's Friday, but Sunday's a coming. And uh, some of you still remember that sermon. In fact, the reason I know that you still remember it is because I've been asked on half a dozen occasions to preach it again. And my plans are, Lord willing, to preach that sermon again next Easter. Uh, not, not a week from today, but a year and a week from today, um, because it has such a marvelous message, I think, about hope. But um, this morning, the story is somewhat reversed, because it's not Friday, 
It's Sunday that this event records for us. But that fateful Friday, the one that we call Good Friday, we're good to figure that out, it's five days away. And so today it's Sunday. But Fridays are coming. What happens on this day uh, that we just read about, a day known as Palm Sunday, um, is, in my opinion, very unusual. It's unusual in a lot of ways. And I want to list for you just three examples of what I think is the unusualness about the events that are recorded for us that occur on this day. So stay with me as we take uh, three looks at some interesting notes, I hope, about the text that will lead us to some application for our own lives. The first piece of unusualness uh, begins with the instructions that Jesus gives to his disciples about securing a donkey for him. Um, now, gang, this could very possibly have been a miracle. That is, Jesus could have uh, created a donkey out of nothing and had him sitting there when the, guy, when the disciples got there. It could have been that kind of thing. But I, I don't think it was. I think what you find here is a, um, uh, an example of one of those unknown, unnamed believers that very possibly or probably uh, what happened is that Jesus had spoken to him before and said, uh, there's going to come a day when I'm going to need your donkey. So when, uh, when they come to get it, don't, um, don't hinder them. But uh, whoever he is, that is, whoever this little donkey owner is, he plays, in one sense, a very minor role, um, a very minor part in this ticker tape parade that is about to occur. But you know, ladies and gentlemen, in another sense, he plays an unbelievably large part in this whole scene that unfolds for us called Palm Sunday. One of my heroes is a guy by the name of G.K. Chesterton. And um, my daughter knows that, or my, my daughter Megan knows that. And for Christmas one year, she gave me uh, the collected poems of G.K. Chesterton. Well, Chesterton goes beyond talking about the donkey owner. Um, he talks about the donkey. And he, he wrote a poem about the donkey. Uh, it's very brief. Let, let me read it to you. Um, but in this poem, the donkey is talking. The donkey says... When fishes flew and forests walked and figs grew upon thorn, some moment when the moon was blood, then surely I was born. With a monstrous head and sickening cry, and ears like errant wings, the devil's walking parody on all four-footed things, the tattered outlaw of the earth, of ancient crooked will, Starved, scourged, deride me. I am dumb. I keep my secret still. Fools, for I also had my hour. One far fierce hour and sweet. There was a shout about my ears and palms before my feet. <laughs> There's a point there, ladies and gentlemen. There's, I think, a good point that shouldn't be missed, both about the donkey owner and the donkey, and the point is that the kingdom of God is advanced through a collection of a lot of small things. A lot of small things gather up to produce this wonderful thing known as the kingdom of God. 
Here you have two examples. You've got a no-name follower of Jesus Christ and a donkey. And without them, this whole prophetic fulfillment would have never been accomplished. Um, Accomplished (laughs) through a jackass. You may think, um, or may tend to think, that, that your contribution to the kingdom of God is, is such an insignificant thing. I only work in the nursery. You know, uh, I teach third graders. I, uh, I cut grass around here. I stuff the bulletins. But you know what, ladies and gentlemen, one, another one of my heroes, Francis Schaeffer, wrote a book about you. The whole book is entitled, No Little People. There are no little people, ladies and gentlemen. There are no little people in the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is put together in advance through a collection of some small things. How about this? Does the name John Stoffitz ring a bell? Probably not. I dare say there's not a person in this room besides my educated self that has ever heard of John Stoffitz. John Stoffitz just happened to be the man that God used to lead Martin Luther to Christ. Ever heard of John? Nah. But through a collection of some small things, the kingdom of God is advanced. It's just a donkey. Who cares about a donkey? Well, very interestingly enough, the text says Jesus has need of him. He has need of you too. Just a cup of cool water, ladies and gentlemen. Just go offer one of those and, just, and, and let's begin to watch what great things that God might do among us. You know, it may be more useful than you ever dreamed. In my grace group last Sunday night, one of the guys in the grace group, uh, we, we kind of allow for a time of sharing some of the neat things that God has done in our lives. And, and this guy just jumped to the edge of the couch and said, uh, well, I've got to tell you what happened. He said, that, you know, my family's getting older and we have a swing set that is a good swing set in great shape. And, but our kids are, have outgrown it and, and um, we had really no more need of it. And I wanted to give it to somebody who needed it and wanted it and, and could use it. And, um, and so I found a Christian agency that this church supports. And um, I called them and uh, I just was going to find out if they could use the swing set or knew anybody that I could give my swing set to. And so uh, the lady at the end of the, end of the line picked up the phone and she said, oh, da 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 And he said, well, let me tell you my story, you know, kind of older family, you know, kids go, they got to swing sets, you know, they use it and don't use it anymore. And just wondered if uh, anybody that you know could use it. And he said, on the other end of the line was this long silence. And he said, I mean really long. He said, so long uh, that I said, well, um, would you like for me to call back later? <laughs> And when the woman could finally contain herself, she came back onto the line, weeping, saying, My husband and I had been praying for a swing set for three weeks. <laughs> Just a swing set. I was in uh, with the staff this morning, and we pray uh, at 845 together, and one of the men who was in there with us, praying with us and for us, is a man that's heavily involved in prison ministry around here. And whether you know it or not, ladies and gentlemen, you are too. Gracie Van is very involved in a prison ministry. 
We baked cookies. And one of the things that I didn't know we did is that this man got, and I don't know what the class, let's say third graders for all I know. I don't know what class it was, but um, we'll say the third graders. They, they drew placemats for these prisoners, you know, that they could put under their meal and eat off of a placemat, which in laminated, you know, the, the kinds of things that we get at home and put on our refrigerator. And uh, it was this laminated thing, and uh, it had God loves you, and had a picture of a dog on it. And one of the prisoners who had that placemat took his placemat out from underneath his meal. He didn't want to get anything on it because he wanted to take it back to his cell and enjoy it there. It's just a placemat drawn by a third grader of a dog. Doesn't amount to much, does it? Ladies and gentlemen, God uses jackasses like me and like you to advance the kingdom of God in ways that we never would have dreamed. Just a cup of cold water. Just go extend one and let's see. Let's just see what God will do with all that. There's another, or the second unusual thing that I absolutely loved about this story. Because I'm telling you, it brought great comfort to my soul. I hope it will yours. But I want you to notice how Jesus assumes ownership of things that wouldn't normally be called his. He assumes ownership over a donkey. He assumes ownership of a room, you know, the upper room where they had this uh, Passover meal. Things that people would have tended to claim as their own. He assumed ownership of them. And what I think you see in that is his, his right to ownership of all things. Now, you're sitting out there and you're saying, Oh, I know, what he's about. I know where he's about to take us now. He's going to tell us that God owns everything and, you know, you ought to give more money. I'm not going to do that. That's not my point. Jesus does own everything and... Uh, you, you ought to understand that better, but that's not my point. Um, I, I would have you also note that the Bible permits the ownership of private property. Did you know that? Communism doesn't, but Christianity does. And um, the Bible protects it with one of the commands, the Eighth Commandment. Thou shalt not steal. So if you take something uh, from me, then you've stolen it because I have a right to private property. That's not my point either, though. Here's my point. I don't know about the rest of you, but I want Jesus to own everything. I want him to own my donkeys and my pins and my house, etc., etc. I want him. You know something, gang? Um, sometimes I get real worried about this church. You know... Um, <laughs> I know you, I, and I think you've heard my story about my ownership of stock. I have, I am a stock holder. I own eight shares of Procter & Gamble um, that I bought as one share that is split three times, and now I'm up to eight. Um, but I don't much check the NASDAQ. But I have been lately, and I don't even own any stock. But I get worried about Bill's 
a staff to pay and missionaries to support. And, and, and you know, it's then that I have to be reminded that I don't own this place. I just work here. I'm just a hired hand, but I do work for the one who does own it. And ladies and gentlemen, there's something marvelously comforting about that. It's not mine. I want him to own it. What I'm pleading with you about, ladies and gentlemen, is to sign over ownership. Quit trying to control it. Quit trying to manipulate it. And it's far more peaceful the other way. I remember I told you this story years ago about a, a, um, a peasant in India who was taking a train trip, a, a, a lengthy train trip across India, and he had packed all of his worldly goods into a suitcase. And he got on the train and he took his suitcase and he stuck it above him in the rack above him and, and uh, he knew that he couldn't keep his eyes off of it because if he, if he took his eyes off of it, somebody would certainly steal it on the train. And so um, it was a long tri uh, train ride and he was so tired, but he couldn't go to sleep because somebody would steal his, his suitcase with all of his earthly belongings. And so he, he tried to stay awake, tried to stay awake, but he couldn't stay awake any longer. And so he slipped off to sleep for about 20 minutes. He woke up with a start after the 20 minutes and sure enough, the suitcase was gone. The man looked up to see his property being stolen and he said, Thank God, now I can get some sleep. <laughs> you know, ladies and gentlemen, we've all lost money in the stock market, haven't we? We've all, I mean, I don't have much stock, but I do have a retirement plan. Um, I just got a notice from uh, the, my retirement plan, and it, it went south, like yours. 30% uh, down or something. We've all lost money. And you know what? I don't think we're <clears throat> through losing money. That's my... But you know what? If Jesus owns it, it's not, it's not that upsetting. You know, I have a sneaky suspicion that this donkey owner didn't worry one bit about his donkey when he knew that Jesus had it. He, um, he may get it back. He might not. But either way, it's okay. Because Jesus owns it. Oh, ladies and gentlemen, He claims ownership. And oh, how I want Him. Oh, how I want to be in the place in my soul to say, yeah, you own it all. And I'm not going to fret anymore about how much money or whether I'm going to be able to retire and travel the planet. I may get it back. I may not. It's okay. Because Jesus owns it. Those are um, just two unusual parts of this story. There's a third one that I want you to see. And, and very frankly, I think it's the most... It's the most profound, and the other two may have just been tiny compared to it. But I don't know whether you've noticed it when you read the text, or whether you've read it in the past, where you've noticed that everything in this, this story is a radical shift from what Jesus has been doing all along throughout his three-year three ministry. Everything that you see him do here is contrary to the way that he's been conducting himself all along. 
what I'm referring to is, do you remember all those times that he would, he would heal somebody, he would, um, he would open blind eyes, and he'd say, now don't go tell anybody. Um, he, would, um, he would do all these things, and he said, um, just make sure that you don't say this to anyone, don't tell anyone. And um, it, it, was, it was frequent that he was telling, doing things, but making sure that people wouldn't talk about it. Heretofore, he had, tried to, he had tried to keep the question of his messiahship under wraps. But not now. Not, not on this day. He enters Jerusalem in a, in a calculated way. A, a way that would, would necessarily heighten the claims of all of his messiahship. And, and it did. Um, and, and he does this, that is, he, he, he allows this thing to go on and even plans it himself, knowing that five days later will be the end of his life. This scene that I've read to you from Luke 19 is a downright contradiction with the rest of his three years of ministry. Now, why does he allow it? Why does he allow this, which is so contrary to what he had been before, why does he allow this thing to go on in the first place? Why does he allow these same people who he knows that five days later will shout to kill him, why does he permit such an unbelievable farce that on this day, on Sunday, they're shouting, Save now! Save now! Why does he allow this scene called Palm Sunday? Why would he allow a mockery on Sunday when he knows that Friday's a coming. Today, it's Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Five days later, it will be crucify him! All coming from the same set of vocal cords. Well, ladies and gentlemen, the answer is pretty simple as to why he allowed it, but the simple answer is not so simple to understand and I hope you don't miss it because so much of the gospel is wrapped up in it um, let me just suggest or tell you that there has been suggestions that what is going on the reason that Jesus permitted all this is that the crowd was was populated with a bunch of people who had seen him raise Lazarus from the dead and that those people were so excited and that because they were excited that Jesus kind of, you know, got swept away and caught up in the whole thing. And, and just for a moment, he, you know, caved in to all of their requests and allowed them to begin to shout all these wonderful things about him. So what you have here is just an apparent concession uh, to the fevered expectations on the part of the crowd and that Jesus had simply a kind of a weak moment and allowed the crowd to sweep him away and carry him along with them. That, ladies and gentlemen, is the exact suggestion of the old musical Jesus Christ Superstar from 20 years ago. It's exactly what they suggested, is that Jesus just got carried away. Well, it's a nice try. But it's way off the mark. 
Ladies and gentlemen, the reason that Jesus permitted what was in many ways a monumental farce is because now his hour had come. I know that doesn't move you much, but l let me read you, and I'm going to try to do this hurriedly, but you remember the story when Jesus turned water into wine and um, his mother comes to him and he says, Woman, what, did I, what, did, what concern do I have with you? My hour has not yet come. Then in chapter 7, verse 6, another event when Jesus says, My time has not yet come. In verse 8 he says, um, My time has not yet fully come. In verse 30, they sought to take him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. He uh, mentions it in verse, uh, in chapter 8, these words, Jesus spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no one laid hands on him, for his hour had not yet come. I can reproduce those another six or seven times. His hour had not yet come. His hour had not yet come. His hour had not yet come. And yet, we turn to chapter 13 of John, and right before Jesus washes the feet, he says, his hour had come. And we see him in John 17 in the high priestly prayer and he says, My hour has arrived. Gang, I want to suggest to you this morning that Jesus permitted this scene on Palm Sunday. He permitted this display of devotion on the part of the crowd. Stay with me. Because he was forcing them. That is, he was forcing his enemies to kill him. After this event, the wheels are in motion, ladies and gentlemen. And everything is set in motion. Now, all right, let's have a meeting here, let's have a meeting there. Call the Sanhedrin. Get Caiaphas, get Annas, get them all together. It's, it, it, we, our hands are tied now. We must kill him. And I say to you, ladies and gentlemen, Jesus forced that. They hated him before. But now people were calling him the son of David. Can't stand that anymore. Hey, 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 Jesus. Get him to stop all that. Stop them. Stop. Don't let them call you that. Uh, I wouldn't. But if I stopped them, the stones would cry out. And so the singing continues and the crowd lessens as the Pharisees leave to go plot how to kill him. This was the straw, ladies and gentlemen. What I'm saying is this was the straw that was heavy enough to finally break the camel's back. And it was the triumphal entry, Palm Sunday, that did it. His hour had come. And he knew exactly what he was in for. Uh, just real quickly, did you notice that he goes on to weep over Jerusalem? Because he knows what's facing him, but they don't know what's facing them. And he talks about how, as an act of judgment, he's going to unleash the legions of Rome. And no stone will be left un unturned. But having said that, ladies and gentlemen, 
Do you know what hour I'm talking about? Do you know what hour he was talking about? And, I, and I'm not talking about 60 minutes with 360 seconds. We're not talking about that. Or 3600, whatever it is. We're not talking about an hour. We're talking about an event that represented the very apex of his existence. Everything else was preparational until we arrive at this point. And he calls it his hour. Do you know what that is? Do you know what the hour is? Do you know what it is that he is so determined to do, so determined that he forces it by allowing something that he knew would ultimately lead to his dying five days later? Do you know what it is that he's so determined to do? is going to stop him. And it is so important that I do it that I am so going to aggravate them. I am go so going to exacerbate their hatred that they will crucify me. And now my hour will have been completed. You know, ladies and gentlemen, uh, this is the hour for which he left his home in glory. This is the hour for which he left his ivory palaces. The, the, the hour, the apex of history, the hour when Christ died for his people, the hour that he willingly, gladly set aside his life so that people as wicked as us could be forgiven. Do you know what he is so determined to do? He is determined to display his love. For prodigal sons like us. One other thing and I'm finished. You know, guys, um, this point has been made before in your hearing, I know, but the, the fickleness of the crowd, fr uh, Sunday they yell this, Friday they yell this, Hosanna, 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 crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. I, I, I've been thinking some of, much of this week about who do you reckon was in that crowd? Well, we know the Pharisees were in the crowd. And we know some people who just like a party and hear about a parade and think this is exciting and it's pretty boring where I live, so let's run out. Oh, look what's going on here. <laughs> let's, get, let's get involved. But I can't help but believing, ladies and gentlemen, that there were people in that crowd that day who were believers, who were singing Hosanna, Hosanna, and yet came to the scene on Friday and got caught up in that crowd as well. Ladies and gentlemen, I have real room to say that because Peter denied him. 
And I wonder if in that crowd were people who were genuinely saved men and women who loved to see him enter Jerusalem but got so terrified and so caught up in their circumstances on Friday that they cried out, crucify him along with the other guys. And I further wonder if Jesus, while he's riding on a donkey with palm branches being waved at him, I wonder if he saw them in the crowd and caught them in the back of their retinas, seeing them say, Oh, we're so glad to see you, knowing that they would shout otherwise five days later. And yet it was for folk like that that he was determined. Determined to get to the cross. He was going to die for them knowing that they would do things as hideous as we've done. Don't ever again Oh, my brother and sister in Christ, don't ever again raise a question about God's love for you. Our Father, forgive us that we have brought into question whether or not you loved us and you have done such... You have gone to such extremes to demonstrate that love for sinful men and women. Even men and women who would have denied you, as did Peter. And some of us, oh God, we got caught up this week at the office. And people were talking about how foolish it was to commit themselves to a God like Jehovah. And we laughed along with them. And when people said, God be damned, we laughed at that. We got caught up in a crowd that hates you. And they would have never known that we loved you. And I pray, O oh God, that the forgiveness wrought in the cross might thrill us this day. Might there never be a Friday for us because all of our Fridays have been nailed to a cross. And we now are a forgiven people. We bless you, we bless you, we bless you. And do so in Jesus' name.